This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. A heads up to our listeners that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Business Plan for the Planet podcast, a series centered around ESG insights. In these episodes, you'll hear from experts whose work is at the heart of sustainability-linked trends and opportunities, as well as from businesses that are delivering change for a better future for us all. Join us as we shine a spotlight on their commitment to a sustainable future. Thanks for being with us. I'm Nick Gowing, your chair. We're going to deep dive into the nature-based recovery We ask how we can put nature and biodiversity at the heart of our recovery. Let's now go to Mark Goff, who is CEO of Capitals Coalition, to moderate the next discussion. Mark, the floor is yours. Thank you very much and welcome, everyone. Now, nature's having a bit of a moment, isn't it? It's being mentioned all over the place, whether it's in the G7 communique, the new Atlantic agreement that's come through. So there's all of this activity going on. But in this session here, we're going to delve down a little bit more into what it really means and the restorative nature of nature in this way. I've got a great panel with me here today. We've got um, Cecile, who's going to be uh, talking to us from University of Oxford on nature-based solutions. We've also got Maureen, who's the group advisor on natural capital at HSBC. Um, We've got Mike, who's a strategic advisor for sustainable business, and Leslie as well, the vice president of environmental social governance at MSCI. So I'm going to start by coming to you, Cecile, first of all. And can you just explain to us what nature-based solutions actually are? Can you just give us a bit more of a definition of what they are? Okay. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for inviting me to this great panel. It's a brilliant panel. and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. Um, As you say, we have this extraordinary window of opportunity and NBS has never been so prominent in the, the political agenda. Uh, but we're also at a difficult point because there are pitfalls to, inch, to scaling NBS, and this is what uh, we'd like to talk about today. So I wanted to start by giving the context of nature-based solutions, um, why they're an important concept and why they're different to other ecosystems' uh, approaches, um, how much they can contribute to climate mitigation is something we'll address later, I'm sure, And uh, perhaps more importantly, how much they can contribute in terms of um, adapting to climate change, to sustainable development, to protecting and restoring our biodiversity and economic recovery. So to to put it simply, nature-based solutions involves working with nature to address societal challenges, to provide benefits, and this is important both for human well-being and for biodiversity um, and for climate. And specifically, they involve the activities to protect, restore, and better manage natural or semi-natural ecosystems. And here we're talking about all ecosystems. Uh, So the concept of nature-based solutions is rooted in the understanding and the mounting evidence that ecosystems support our societies and our economies in multiple ways by providing food and water security, uh, temperature regulation, as well as carbon carbon mitigation benefits, uh, flood flood or erosion control, 
or coastal defenses, livelihoods, and, and many, many ways. But it also arises from this understanding that biodiversity and climate change stem from the, the two of the biggest problems we face, stem from some of the same drivers, same uh, problem drivers, and also have similar solutions. So just uh, to wrap up, to give you an example, um, land use change accounts for approximately 30% of biodiversity loss. It's the, the biggest cause of biodiversity loss as uh, described by the IPBS report in 2019. It's also the second biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, about 23% of greenhouse gas emissions that comes from the IPCC 1.5 report that was published around the same time. So addressing land use change through nature-based solutions can, in theory, help us address both, both these issues, biodiversity loss and climate change. But in, in practice, we need to look at the small prints here. We really need to understand the small prints because whilst the ultimate goal of nature-based solutions is to uh, address sustainable development, to, to, um, to promote sustainable development with benefits to climate, biodiversity and society, this only comes from healthy, resilient ecosystems that have their functional integrity and that are ecologically sound that will provide these benefits over the long term and be resilient to a rapidly changing climate. Thank you. So, and it's about therefore that connection between nature and climate and making sure that all of these things are together in a system there, I was hearing you say. So coming to you now, Leslie, um, in the financial markets, we're seeing lots of activity at the moment. Where are you seeing this momentum most? Where are things moving? Sure. Uh, thanks, Max. Uh, and, and thanks for, for having me to, to discuss this uh, very important uh, uh, topic. Maybe I just say a, a few words on, on MSCI ESG research for, for, the, for the participants that are not familiar with uh, our company. Um, so we provide ESG research data and insights uh, uh, on um, listed issuers, uh, on more than 8,000 issuers. And we uh, provide that data and research to more than 1,700 uh, clients, uh, mainly institutional investors. And to your question, Mark, um, I would say that since 12, 18 months, the subject has really gone from being a raw topic to be the, the star topic that everyone wants to talk about. And this extremely rapid progression uh, within, within our client's agenda has really been impressive. I, I think having worked in the ESG space for, for more than 10 years, I, I think it's the first time that I'm seeing a subject exploding at such a fast pace and also being underpinned by um, a myriad and multiple innovations in terms of measurement metrics, uh, in terms of policy implementation, and also initiatives and, and coalitions uh, from, from investors. The only thing that I need to add to moderate that um, optimism is that uh, this momentum remains very regional. I would say more than 80% of our demand uh, from clients on biodiversity comes from Europe and particularly from three countries, uh, France, the UK, and uh, the Netherlands. And um, among those European clients, um, a lot of them consider that biodiversity is as important as climate and that those two issues really need to be addressed together. So I think that resonates really well with, with what um, was just mentioned by uh, Cecil. 
Uh, a, a lot of our European clients would list biodiversity as the key uh, three uh, most important ESG topics for, for, for this year. Um, and then we, we are also seeing a bit of demand from our uh, Asian Pacific clients. Uh, but I would say that our, our US clients have remained fairly uh, quiet uh, on the subject. So there are some areas where it's moving much faster than others. I think we've seen this pattern before, haven't we? And therefore, Mike, coming to you, you've been in this game for a little while, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, you've been around the block with a lot of these things. How do we actually connect a lot of this into value chains? Because this is a systems-based thing, isn't it? We can't just take things in isolation here. Well, Mark, I mean, just, just three bullet points of, uh, to start answer that question. First is businesses fundamentally don't understand the importance of nature to their business model. If I walk into a boardroom now and say, we've got a problem with the climate, most boardrooms, sadly looking a little bit too much like me, would turn around and say, okay, Mike, renewables, electric vehicles, stopping, reducing our energy demand, they sort of get the rough dynamics of what needs to happen. If I walk in and say there's a problem with nature, no idea why nature is important to their business model as a source of raw materials, as a receptor of their waste, as supporting the basic ecosystem that we all depend upon. So that's point number one, business doesn't understand nature. Point number two is, fundamentally nature demands human solutions so if you look at the two great sectors that have been disrupted by sustainability so far power the shift from coal to wind and solar and the shift from uh, internal combustion engine to electric vehicles within reason they haven't had to involve too many people yet small number of people involved with the, the shift of the energy system clearly more people involved in terms of mobility because we've all got to drive something different but when it comes to the food system, every single person on the planet is involved. They consume food every day. Hundreds of millions of people are involved with actually producing food. So solving the climate and the nature challenge for the food system is exponentially harder and has got to be human centric. And my final point, business people like me are simple. We need an endpoint, net zero we're reaching for, a definition of where we're working, scope one, two, and three, pathways to get there, solutions, the electric vehicle I was talking about, partnerships, race to zero to help us collaborate on the solutions and a defined pathway that everybody can say, ah, they're following a science-based target. This must be good work by company X. If I look at nature, there's none of that. There's no endpoint, there's no pathway, there's no definition, there's no partnerships either to scale solutions that we need. So for all those reasons, putting nature at the heart of the business conversation is critical. I would suggest there is some movement on those targets and things we now have net impact and um, we're just looking at um, net climate and then we're also looking at nature positive in that and you've seen that coming through in conversations more recently there is also some work going on but you're right it isn't as advanced there's a long way to go there so coming to you marine now um so you're involved in potential markets here so what's the role of markets in creating a restorative com uh, economy well, thank you, Mark, and thank you, uh, uh, the panelists, for your very uh, uh, great remarks. I mean, I agree that uh, nature-based solutions have uh, uh, taken the lead on, on the, the sustainability conversation in companies and financial industry quite recently, but quite massively. And uh, uh, as far as uh, the potential role of markets are concerned, I would say that the potential is massive. The current biodiversity financing gap is estimated between 600 billion and uh, roughly 800 billion uh, dollars per year. Uh, and it's only 3% of climate finance uh, dedicated to nature. So that's 10 to 15 billion dollars uh, a year. Um, being said that, I mean, that means that markets are key 
to prioritize nature and create a restorative economy. Uh, uh, to illustrate that, I mean, HSBC has uh, announced a joint venture with pollination a year ago uh, called CAM, Climate Asset Management, with actually the ambition to be a leader in financing um, natural capital. And when we say financing, I mean, it goes through uh, bonds, through uh, equity, uh, uh, through uh, uh, real assets, actually uh, uh, f financing uh, uh, lands, uh, regenerative agriculture, uh, and uh, uh, also oceans ecosystems, um, but also commodities. I mean, purchasing the, the produce created from natural capital. And I think on that, there's actually a lot that we can link with um, uh, the voluntary carbon market. But when I say voluntary carbon market, I'm talking about um, uh, voluntary uh, action. And I think that uh, if we want to reach the potential of markets there to restore and protect nature, we uh, uh, need actually regulation. Regulation is gonna be key to uh, bring that market at scale. Excellent. So we're seeing some commonalities coming through. How can we use governments? So what is the role you just mentioned there, Marine? the idea of governments incentivizing? There's lots of different incentive mechanisms here. We've talked around voluntary markets. We've talked about the nature based solutions. We talked about the financial sector here. What is it, therefore, that we need to start bringing in to change the rules on this? Because the, as Mike's saying, there isn't there isn't the same standardized process. So do we need to do that first? I can jump in because I think it links directly with what Mike said. I mean, regulation is about first, to me, setting a vision, uh, such as being nature positive. I mean, and UK has been key there uh, during the G7, announcing that it could be a nature positive, and it uh, leads the way for many other nations to to commit to to the same kind of vision. But then it's also about framework and accounting, as it said. And for now, financial accounting methods are, I would say, ill-equipped to uh, uh, embrace the risks and opportunities uh, linked to nature. A lot is going on, but uh, yes, that, that's how I see regulation as being key going forward on that issue. If I may just, just add Thank on that. Susan. I think also in terms of regulation, it's really important that we, we see a momentum pushing all the key stakeholders to um, to take action on, on biodiversity. And, and here, you know, I have in mind, and I'm sorry, because I would be biased because I will refer to my country of origin, France, uh, but I have in mind the Article 29 of the French law on energy and climate, which is pushing really the financial industry to step up the game on biodiversity and asking those actors to disclose how they will take into account biodiversity risk within the investment strategy and how they're going to align the investment with the long-term biodiversity target that will be enacted during the, the Convention on, on, on Biodiversity and how they're going to use different metrics such as biodiversity footprint tool and, and measure the contribution to, um, to reduce um, the pressure on, on, on biodiversity loss through, through the investment. And I think this is key because it really involves um, additional stakeholders, not only the corporates, but also the, the, the financial industry to, to ensure that the investments are allocated towards uh, that goal to, to, um, to reduce biodiversity loss and, and to restore uh, biodiversity. Cecile, you wanted to jump in as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add that. Um, so from a, I come at this from an ecosystem scientist 
point of view. Uh, but on our side, uh, there's a lot of work going on in the universities uh, across the UK, and I know in, in France and in other countries as well, working on um, addressing this question, as you said, Mike, uh, business don't understand nature, we're having trouble monitoring uh, the, the biodiversity. So addressing this question and working on developing robust but practical methodologies for monitoring biodiversity, for implementing uh, monitoring, reporting and verification systems. And obviously the work that we've been doing, bringing together those looking at value, the natural capital protocol sets out a framework that can be used. And in fact, we're standardizing that at the moment. We're going through and making sure that the pathways that you use there are in a common language to be able to build in to things such as the reporting directive, which we know is coming quite soon. Um, Mike, how do we make this thing real? How, have you got any examples you can give us of actually real life application of this within business? Well, just building upon the very good discussion we've just had on the role of government here, I draw your attention to something that's happened in the UK with the Global Resources Initiative, GRI, that's brought civil society, government, policymakers and big business together to try and solve this intractable problem of deforestation in UK bound supply chains. You think of soy, palm oil, cocoa, etc. out there. And the UK government's introducing a law now that will drive due diligence into those supply chains. And that's been co-created alongside civil society and business. So I think that, that shows a practical model forward. A couple of other examples that I really like at the moment, the work of IDH, that's in the sort of Dutch sustainable trade um, organization, that's putting people at the heart of trying to build a new sustainable approach to managing not just nature, but economic value in supply chains as well, which is critical. Go back to this point of hundreds of millions of people around the world participate in, in the global food system. They have to be protected. There is one scenario, we haven't got time to explore it today, that sees a significant amount of global food production taken indoors over the next 10 to 15 years. We think about the vertical farms, aero farms, we think about ultimately fermented cultured meat in the lab. It's still some way away from scale. By the mid 2030s, it will hit scale and it would be brilliant for the environment on the surface. 99% less impact as it's brought indoors. The impact on livelihoods, not just in Africa, but across Europe in terms of small scale and medium sized farming will be devastating. And we have to walk into that mindful. There is a trade off between nature and society and both need to benefit. And then just a final thought on big business supporting these smallholders and producers. Again, I like the work that Kellogg's have done. Kellogg's are working with 400,000 growers around the world to practically support them on this journey to produce things more sustainably. Better for nature, better for their livelihoods, better for their incomes. Similar work being done by Unilever, by Starbucks, by McCain, committed to 300,000 acres of regenerative agriculture to produce potatoes as well. So it's emerging. But to your point you made to me, to my opening remarks, it's tiny in scale. I could go to the thousand biggest businesses in the world on climate and about 20% of them have got a coherent strategy now on climate. Net zero scope one, two, and three science-based target, 20%. On nature, I'd struggle to find 10 out of the thousands that can actually do that yet. And that needs to be our drive in the next decade, is to upskill business and these huge scope three supply chains around the world and the conversation with the consumer to deliver nature as part of the food system. Excellent. So, so one of the challenges with um, scaling that up is gonna be the complexity around this. So the confusion even between biodiversity natural capital, these phrases seem to be thrown around uh, nature-based solutions. Everyone's using them, but they're all being used interchangeably sometimes. So how do we get over that complexity about how we measure this? So 
What about finding this uh, standard biodiversity metric? How about that? Leslie or Maureen, can you help us with that one? We do actually already uh, measure the economic value of eco ecosystem services. So meaning that, uh, uh, like for example, the OECD, I think estimated uh, uh, the ecosystem services to range between uh, 125 and 140 trillion dollars a year. Um, it also estimates um, the, um, that, that the world would have lost like between four and twenty trillion dollars per year between uh, uh, the end of uh, actually the, the last decade due to inaction. So we have already kind of measurement. But being said that, I mean the monetary valuation of ecosystem services is incomplete, and uh, we are part of uh, uh, several working groups to actually address that um, because we need useful methodology. Uh, and uh, as uh, Mike said, as Leslie said, uh, as Cecil said, I mean, pragmatic ones. Um, th there's a lack of data to evaluate physical transition reputational risks. When I say physical <laughs> transition reputational risk, I'm actually uh, taking back the um, taxonomy of risks that has been used by the TCFD. And it leads me to the initiative in which we are putting a lot of hope, which is the TNFD. Uh, uh, building on what has been done, the kind of thinking that has been done with TCFD, um, work on nature-related rel risk. We understand that uh, there's an overlap, clearly, between climate and natural capital. But meanwhile, they cannot be assessed in the same way. I mean, we all know that with climate, we have kind of a single indicator, <laughs> uh, which is CO2 emissions. And with nature lots, it's an aggregation of MEDI. It's going to be difficult. We can build an existing framework to actually help the economic and financial industries to address and embed them. But it's still, yes, work ahead of us. And the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, the TNFD, launched very recently. So that's one to watch about where they're going. So, Leslie, there's a question here that's just come in related to that, just to see if we can build on it. So what data is actually going to be needed? What data are you collecting to help you in the um, decisions that you're making around biodiversity? Yeah, so so I think really the the, the data that we need, um, there are multiple on, on that topic. I would say one of the fundamental ones, and I think Mike touched upon it, is whether the company has made a holistic assessment of its impacts, but also dependencies on, on nature. And, and that impact assessment, impact and dependencies assessment needs to be conducted really across the full value chain of the company. Because that assessment is really the backbone for companies to identify their hotspots uh, within the business model and, and prioritize and orientate accordingly the, the mitigation and restoration practices. And based on on how assessment on companies, um, it is still really rare to, to see uh, such holistic assessment uh, across companies. And I think this is really explaining then why we're missing more practical target from companies, you know, on the actual pressure on the key drivers that lead to biodiversity loss, such as the level of use of each natural resource, the level of reliance on specific commodities that are um, the one that uh, leads the most to uh, to deforestation, what is the land use, water use, carbon emissions across the full value chain. 
and and then I could carry on for for, for uh, another like a, a few minutes and probably hours on all the different metrics that that we would need and and some are, are, are sector specific. Uh, I think a, a, another metric that um, we collect, but where we we um, we face a, a lot of gap in, in terms of disclosure is around site level data. And this is particularly important for biodiversity because it's it's very much a, a locally specific uh, issue. And um, what we're seeing is that that gap is is huge even for companies that have biodiversity impact in their own operations, you know, through the direct assets. I'm thinking about the mining industry, the extractive industries. But if you think about that location gap uh, for sectors such as food that have most of the biodiversity impact across the, the, the value, the, the supply chain, the upstream um, value chain, then, you know, the, the, the level of data is even more opaque. And this is very complex. Um, so this is this is something where um, a lot of stakeholders need to to work on. I, I think we, we need more disclosure from corporates, but we um, you know, as data providers and um, also on the on the scientific side, we we all working to to improve supply chain modeling and input and and, and output uh, data set. And 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 that goes to my uh, other point that we need to complement this company specific data, which is for the moment far from being exhaustive with uh, scientific and, and research literature that would bring um, to us life cycle assessment and input and output model that estimate the biodiversity footprint based on specific business activities uh, and, and based on a, a specific location. Um, and, and then maybe the last metric that um, we are looking but not really finding uh, is 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 also something that Mike mentioned. You know the, the science-based target for nature. Um, we we believe that it's a metric that would really um, help to to um, to hold companies accountable and to to measure how companies are, are progressing and especially to see what trajectory they're taking and and what's their endpoint and whether this is aligned with with the the, the policy framework. Um, and, and with scientific uh, uh, trajectory. Yeah, and the science-based targets network, obviously uh, working now with a lot of enterprises, starting with water as the first one quite soon. Mike, you wanted to come in. Uh, and very briefly to a, on an excellent discussion about how business actually provides the metrics. So I'm seeing two interesting approaches emerge now. So businesses like Coca-Cola are starting to run a scorecard. So these are our 10 critical raw materials that we use. Each of them now are on a pathway to be individually more sustainable. So that's an interesting beginning, I think. The second thing I'm seeing from businesses like Mars and Curring that are starting to set a land-based footprint, just like a carbon footprint, but this is the totality of land in hectares that require to sustain the raw material production for our business model. We either commit to hold it as we grow, that becomes no bigger, or we commit to reduce it through regenerative practices. For early days, it's a small number of leading businesses exploring, but I think we need to be learning from the experience and practicalities of what these organizations are doing. The learning's out there. Yeah, and um, all of those companies you were just talking about are working very closely with us actually at the moment on doing that footprinting using capitals. Um, Maureen, you wanted to jump in? Yes, just to add something is that um, we've talked about um, the, the complexity of uh, assessing those risks. 
and embedding it in our system, being it at corporate level or in the financial uh, uh, industry level. Being said that, I mean, it, this complexity shouldn't prevent us to actually start because there's um, easy pick uh, um, within our risks policies. I mean, we have been um, setting ourselves rules for a very long time since 2004 on uh, forest, then on agriculture, on water, on um, Ramsar wetlands. And so to actually um, start with stopping financing um, activities, projects, companies that have, that, that for which we can easily evidence the negative and sustainable impact they can have on nature. So Cecile, I wanted to come back to you. So um, there's a question, there's some groups advocating that using nature-based solutions is just a greenwashing tool. So what are the actual benefit, what are the actual real case benefits that you're starting to see coming through from this? I mean, is it a greenwashing tool? Are people just jumping on the bandwagon with this? Yeah, uh, Mike, that's a really interesting question. I mean, yes, so there there is a, a big worry around greenwashing at the moment. And I think uh, I can take this opportunity, if I may, to talk about uh, some work we've been doing lately, looking at the large scale deployment of nature based solutions and how they can help limit uh, global warming, basically. So how much do nature-based solutions contribute to mitigating climate change? And this is where we need to uh, provide a, war, uh, um, a word of caution. There has been so much emphasis on the potential for nature-based solutions to help us offset our emissions and to um, tree planting in terms of mitigating climate change. So late, lately, I've been working with a, a big group of scientists from across the world trying to address this question in terms of how much, um, in terms that are relevant to the Paris Agreement. So how much can nature-based solutions help us keep uh, peak warming to well below two degrees this century whilst pursuing the efforts to limit to 1.5 degrees C? So let's look at this in terms of degrees. Uh, was the question and it's a complex question to address everybody there there's a lot of work around it there are many caveats as you know the albedo food security fiber security land tenure rights um uh, the carbon saturation age of forest and and etc but the general co consensus that we find is that on land and there's still a big evidence gap, as you know, on oceans, uh, for evidence on oceans. So we're focusing on land. On land, uh, deploying nature-based solutions on a large scale could help us mitigate by about 10 gigatons CO2 per year annually. And that would be the equivalent of 11 gigatons CO2 equivalent if you're considering all the other greenhouse gas um, other greenhouse gases. So this is every year up to the end of the century. And this is where it's interesting because, uh, so half of it would come from avoided emission. It's important to, to understand the, 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 the difference between what comes from avoiding emissions. So that's protection of ecosystems and better management of working lands and actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere, which is enhancing sinks. And that's um, protecting, uh, that's, um, uh, better management of working lands also, but also restoring ecosystems. So this big emphasis on tree planting. But interestingly, only two gigatons per year of that 
uh, two gigatons CO2 per year comes from restoring ecosystems. So we need to put this into perspective. It's a small proportion compared to the 10 gigatons we're talking about when we're talking about protecting ecosystems and better managing the lands that we are already using. So we don't need more land for that. Um, uh, and it, so it's slightly disproportionate to this huge focus on tree planting and uh, carbon offsetting using um, nature-based solutions. The rest comes from protecting ecosystems, that's about four gigatons CO2 per year, and better management of working lands, again, about four gigatons CO2 per year. And um, this translates, so back to the question of how much we actually reduce global warming by, by implementing nature-based solutions at scale um, over the, 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 the next few decades, it translates to avoiding warming by 0.3 degrees C by the time we reach a peak warming in, of two degree warming in 2085. So that's in the IPCC scenarios. We took the IPCC scenarios and uh, added nature-based solutions at scale to those. So it's a, it's a real benefit but it's still limited. We need to understand that. And um, we also need to understand that the contribution is time sensitive. So one of the big, uh, the, 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 the crucial findings we found is that, um, that nature-based solutions continue to act over time. So we need to invest now in nature-based solutions that have uh, longevity because they have a powerful role in reducing temperatures up to the end of the century. And that's where we see real benefits, mitigation benefits at the end of our century uh, during this cooling phase after we reach peak warming. But all this, of course, will only happen if we focus on decarbonizing our economy, if we do stay below two degrees. We have been warned again and again, the difference between 1.5 and two degrees. And, and this, it's crucial to understand that nature-based solution cannot become a, an alternative to decarbonizing our economy, of course. And then the second part of this is that, as I said before, we do need to have these resilient ecosystems that are healthy, that have um, multiple ecosystem functions. And that comes again to the metrics question we are always coming back to. Um, some argue that these metrics should be perhaps linked to ecosystem functions. Uh, and it would make more sense to look at it in terms of functions rather than purely a uh, number of species or, or, or that kind of thing. So ultimately, the main message that we caution against focusing on carbon as the main metric of of monitoring these projects. And we need to look at ecosystem integrity, social equ equity, and uh, and real climate benefits. Excellent. To avoid and th there's been, there's lots of activities. I'm, I'm aware of over 19 different biodiversity metrics that have been developed over the last couple of years. So there's lots of people thinking about that. It feels like we've got several questions here about reshuffling subsidies about priorities are we going fast enough urgency has the pandemic given us enough urgency here so maybe to try and bring this around to some form of conclusion we've got about four or five minutes left can each of you think about so what is it that we really need to do now um, if this is as urgent as we're saying it's going to go on if we invest in nature-based solutions we're going to see those benefits coming back again and again and again but what is it we need to do in this next five to six months period um, before the end of this year that is urgent. If we could have that magic wand to get one thing to occur, what is it that we need to happen? Let's start with you, Leslie. What, what do you think is the most urgent activity that we need to do from your perspective? 
I, I think from you know ESG research providers perspective you know how main role is to raise awareness among investors on what are the main activities what are the main sectors that are causing biodiversity loss and and really provide the most accurate uh simple and comparable metrics on on that that is our um you know key priorities and what we've been doing for years what we we've been quite good at is is um collecting and evaluating bottom-up company-specific data. And we do that in, in um, leveraging scientific and alternative uh, third-party data sets to measure the specific biodiversity exposure of each issuers through their own operations or supply chain or based on the specific business lines. And then we analyze the medication practices uh, implemented by, by companies to either avoid or, or reduce the, the biodiversity loss. Um, or, or even res restore nature. So, so we have those company-specific data, but I would say they are very sector-specific because we would we would look at those issues for the industries that are uh, the most at risk. Those metrics would be uh, different depending on um, whether we look at own operations biodiversity issues versus supply chain biodiversity issues. And what we're hearing from investors is that we need this kind of single and meaningful metrics on biodiversity that can be aggregated at portfolio index level that's some of the demand that we're getting so what we what we're trying to do in the short term is seeing how we can complement our assessment with some of the top-down um biodiversity footprint efforts that has been done by um, other institutions companies sometimes government led um, uh, leveraging a lot of scientific and academic research which which is very much top-down um, and would be very complementary with, with, with our data set. And, and we think that looking at this collaboration, partnership, and, and see how we, we, we can provide this superior you know, biodiversity offering for, for clients to, to help them to better um, you know, meet some of, the regulatory, um, uh, some of the regulatory framework that um, um, or, or regulatory um, you know, momentum that is this is that is happening is is our key priority. Excellent. What about you, Marine? What do you want to see happen in the next five months? Well, actually, we didn't have the time to talk about uh, sovereign debt, but I think given the fact that we are uh, in the super year of nature with COP15 and COP26, what I would like to, uh, what I would dream of to see now is actually to have um, protection and restoration of nature. Um, included into NDCs, um, uh, nationally determined contribution, so to develop um, sovereign debt linked to uh, those KPIs developed at scale. Very clear. Thank you. What about you, Cecile? Um, I well, I wholeheartedly agree with uh, Leslie and Marines. Um, the metrics, robust, simple metrics at the site level, I would add to that, that can be linked to remote sensing and to be deployed at the, at, at the landscape level, really thinking about action at the landscape level, as well as the, the site level, um, implementing more, more nature-based solutions in NDCs, definitely. And um, the, the also focusing on the importance of implementing nature-based solutions in partnership with local communities, which ensures the, the continuity of, of these projects. So for that, I would like to see companies 
who rather than focus on offsetting their emissions, I would suggest uh, working on insetting, and that's a concept that's been gaining traction lately. That's uh, referring to investment by companies into projects along their supply chain where they have more more um, more influence on the projects, more uh, long-term benefits gained from it. Uh, and again, focusing on projects that are uh, good for climate, biodiversity and people. And with these multiple uh, goals, being able to uh, make their own supply chains more resilient. Wonderful. And Mike, round us off on this one. What's the thing that you yeah, want? Yeah, I mean, brilliant, brilliant points. And just to add th three bullet points into, into the room. First, subsidies. We've seen with the discussion about the common agricultural policy all around the world today, governments are paying farmers to do the wrong thing. We need to pay them for doing the right thing. The second is this, making sure there is a clear pathway for business to get involved. Clear endpoints like net zero, science-based target equivalent, scope one, two and three equivalent, rest zero equivalent. And the third and final thing, and we've you know, mentioned already, is the power of the fourth industrial revolution. The food system is complex because we're selling trillions of items to billions of people produced by hundreds of millions of people. We can't track all that with a spreadsheet. Artificial intelligence, big data, remote sensing helps solve it. Let's get those three things right. Wonderful. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you to the panel. Thanks, Mark. Welcome back. Yeah, and I was very struck by the sudden focus on nature, as uh, Maureen put it, quite recently and quite massively in terms of scale and speed. And Mike's saying um, most companies haven't got a clue about nature, given the enormity of the challenge. But as Leslie said, uh, US clients are rather silent in this area at the moment. Um, certainly, there's a significant wish and a significant message there on a determination to make nature front of house in addition to climate and sustainability. It shows what we have to talk about is getting wider and broader almost by the day, almost by the week. So thank you very much indeed, Mark. This has been a special podcast in the Business Plan for the Planet series. More episodes will follow shortly, so please do keep an eye out for those. For more information on the programme, visit business.hsbc.com forward slash sustainability. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast, or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.